Born and bred on the Scottish island of Isla, one would assume that whiskey was in our guest's blood. But it took a venture off island to bring him straight back. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Adam Hannett thought he was destined for a life of marine biology, but that was not to be. Lucky for the whiskey lover and all of us, he's found his calling as the head distiller at the legendary distillery of Brooklady. He's here with us today to prove that passion and energy makes for great whiskey. But before that, can you believe it's December, the holiday season already? Are you looking for the perfect gift for that cocktail lover in your family? I'm making it easy. Just head over to LushLifeCocktailTours.com to buy your tickets for the tastiest tour in London. You'll be introduced to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London, all while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history. So buy those gift vouchers and enjoy them later. Now let's get to that whiskey. Yeah, so I, I grew up on Isla. Um, which I think is, it makes me one of the luckiest people in the world because Isla is a, a really small island, a really small community, and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to go. How many people live there? So there's about 3,200 people uh, live on the island. So you know every single one of them? Pretty much, yeah. If you don't know them that well, you know who they are and everything about them. So, of course, uh, But no they secrets. know the same about me. So uh, it, it's a lovely community. It's a, it's a really nice community. Um and I'm lucky because my, my parents moved to Isla when I was, or before I was born, actually, um, in 1982. And they had, you know, a relationship with people who, who lived there. They used to come up on holiday. And Where they, were they coming from? So Manchester. My parents are both from Manchester. So the big city. The big city, yeah, yeah. Um, and and yeah, what were they doing there? So they were, um, when they lived in Manchester, they were uh, nurses, they were training to be nurses and, and uh, were nursing. And that's how they met uh, a guy who uh, was from Isla. He was down there training as well. And my dad and him were good friends. And he would come up on holiday through the 70s. And uh, obviously then he met my mum. She came up on holiday too. And they just loved the lifestyle and the community and the people. And, you know, I think the story goes, basically, they were sitting on the beach, you know, um, you know, last night before they went home, watching the sun go down. And why are we going back to Manchester? You know, let's let's make the move. And so so they did. They basically went back, um, sold the house, everything else. Uh, I have an older brother, so he was uh, he was only two, and they basically relocated to Isla. And, did they uh, think they were going to still be nurses there? Well, I, I think at that stage, I mean, there's a hospital in Isla, and there's there's community nurses and things as well. Um, at that time, there wasn't jobs, so my uh, my father was also a joiner. Uh, he moved up, or they moved up, and he was, um, you know, he was doing joinery work. Um, he was doing farming, fishing, uh, which again he loved. You know, you know, to, a completely different thing to grow up in Manchester, and then, you know, a couple of months later, you uh, you move to Isla, and your job is to get up at, I know, whenever the tides are ready, about five o'clock in the morning, go out in a boat, spend the whole day fishing, you know, learning something completely new, um, and you know, Isla is it's beautiful, so. You're out in the sea. You see the whole island from a different place. Um, 
you know, to be doing something completely different like that would be amazing. Or it was farming. really brave yeah. of them. Oh, really brave of them. Yeah, yeah. But I think they, they just wanted to do it. They love the community. They love the, the lifestyle and just, you know, quietly went about the business, you know, fitted in. I'm one of four children, so they raised the family there. And, um, you know, my mum, when, when we were little, she was uh, looking after us all, which is a, a thankless task. Um, oh, good thing she was a nurse. Yeah, too. absolutely. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. But it was, it was to grow up there was fantastic because you had loads of freedom. You know, we, we grew up at the, um, the very north end of the island in a beautiful old house um but it was a very old house so in the winter you know the carpets would be hovering off the floor with the, the breeze kind of blowing through but um but we just had this amazing childhood where you know the memories of it are running around on the beach and um you know just generally having an amazing time making your own fun you know but kind of like come back at seven for dinner and Pretty just much, go yeah, and do whatever yeah. you can absolutely whatever absolutely. you want i guess yeah yeah i mean it, it was it was a fantastic place to grow up because yeah there was complete freedom mm-hmm. um and i'm lucky that i'm, I'm raising uh, two daughters or my wife and i um she, she does more than me of course actually but uh, uh you know we're raising a family there as well and it's a wonderful thing to know that you your kids are growing up and they're confident speaking to lots of different people because they know everyone so it's not like they just have their own age group of friends you know they have they, they speak to adults they know everybody and you know I think that's a really it gives them a really good um, kind of grounding I suppose do you and, and see them having the same childhood as you had it's different I think it is different but um, I, I think that's a good thing there's many many similarities you know I mean they, they love sitting on the beach, you know, rolling around in the sand, you know, having a great time, having barbecues. And that's the stuff we did when we were little. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, there's probably more for kids now. I think, you know, as, as the world moves on, you know, people are trying to do more, have more activities mm-hmm. and things like that. So the swimming lessons and, you know, when I was, lucky, when I was young, we didn't actually have a swimming pool. So we learned to swim in the sea, um, which was great. You know, my, again, my dad was a really good swimmer. He did a lot of... Um, uh, kind of teacher training, uh, teacher training, sort of like um, uh, swimming training stuff for, for kids. And you look back on the pictures now, and you see him in the wetsuit, or you know, the dry suit, all wrapped up, and all these kids wearing speedos, and like they're blue because it's so cold <laughs> swimming in the sea. Now, you know, there's there's a swimming pool, and it's, it's like there's more things for kids. I think a heated pool must be such a luxury for you. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and it's actually heated by um, so it's in Bamore, the, the kind of the, the town in the centre of Isla, and. The swimming pool is an old is an old um, like bonded warehouse, and that used to be part of a more distillery. And it's actually heated. The water is heated with the waste heat from the distillery. Ah. So depending on what the activities are at the distillery, you can see like when the best day to go swimming is right, when it's really warm. How hot so, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, depending on the mashing schedule, you know when to go swimming, which is quite uh, quite unique. Did you always knowledge. think you would stay there? Um, I, I don't know. I think when when I was when I was young, I. I didn't really think too much about, you know, what I'm going to... I never really knew what I wanted to be. I didn't really... Um, you know, I, I just had no idea. So I didn't really think too much about it. Um, and when I, I left school, of course, I went off to university. There was a, there was a big thing about where you, you know, what you do with your life and, and where you go. So I went off to university and um, I didn't really enjoy it that much. Where were you at university? So I went to Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was uh, I was at school, I, I really enjoyed biology. Um, I was a really good biology teacher, and uh, really really loved that. And you know, I was good at it as well. So that was that was helpful. And uh, I went off to study marine biology in Aberdeen, and I naively had these visions of you know being in you know doing research in the Great Barrier Reef, and you know sitting on a catamaran, having a wonderful time in the sunshine, and watching this fish swimming around. And the more I was kind of studying in Aberdeen, the more I was realizing that I'm probably going to end up in a lab if I get a job at all. And I didn't really enjoy 
you know, like I, I did chemistry and I was terrible at chemistry and um, all these kind of things. So I basically thought, look, do I want to spend four years of my life studying for something that I don't really have a passion for that, you know, at least I've tried it and I, I know it's not for me. So I came home uh, to Isla and didn't really know what I was going to do. Just took stock, you know, came home, right, let's figure things out. And uh, for a little while I was, I was kind of a bit aimless, didn't know what to do. And, um, you know, just doing odds and ends, bits and pieces. And uh, my dad said to me, look, you know, you really should think about like what it is you're going to do with your life. You know, you should, um, even in the meantime, just, you know, try and get a job in a, in a distillery because, you know, if nothing else, you'll get a bottle of whiskey every month. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so I, I started thinking about it and um, they were, my parents were nursing. Um, they were looking after a, a guy who um, he had cancer and he was, he was obviously um, kind of struggling there. And they were looking after him and his wife, um, Ella, worked at Brickladdy uh, as the, the kind of the... Um, Basically, she ran the place. You know, she was like the, the the woman in the office who kind of made everything happen. And um, she said, "Look, you know, if Adam's looking for work, you know, send him down. We'll see if we can do something." So um, it, that, that was a, a lovely moment. You know, despite you know what she was going through, she still was wanting to uh, to you know help somebody. I didn't know Ella. She didn't know me, but because my parents, you know, she wanted to, to do something uh, uh, for me, which was really kind. So I ended up starting at the distillery and. I just fell in love with whiskey. The first day I, I started working at the distillery, um, I just felt this this amazing connection to the place and, and what was happening at the distillery because Brooklady had been closed down for a long time. Um, and it had reopened and there was passion and there was energy and there was this freedom and this kind of pioneering spirit around the distillery. I loved being part of that. You know, I was just a tour guide. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'd grown up on Isla and I didn't know a lot about whiskey because whiskey was everywhere and it was just... Well, know, that's what I was going to ask. Um Growing mm-hmm. up, did you uh, obviously? There's uh, Isla's really famous for mm-hmm. whiskey, and but what what because you're the first person I've met really from Isla. It, it's there, but are you conscious of it? Like, is it such a part of your life? Yeah, I, that- I think I think now absolutely. But growing up, um, like I was born in 1983, and through the 80s, it wasn't the best time for making whiskey. I mean, today single malt is is hugely fashionable. Everyone's really interested, but single malt wasn't really that popular back then. It wasn't it was blended whiskey you would have, and the Isla um, the Isla distillers would be producing most of the spirit they made for blends. Uh, because of the character it has is it's fantastic for for blended whiskey mm-hmm. to to bring in more body more more um, more flavour, and so most distilleries when they were operating and again the eighties was a time when there was kind of too much production so they would close the distilleries so there was mm-hmm. you know, boom and bust. Uh, it was times. vodka time. Well, I think it was just you know the the to predict how much you're going to need in mm-hmm. years to come. You know, you you make loads this year oh, actually the sales are that great so let's cut back next year so mm-hmm. it, was, it was boom and bust the production was up and down there was no visitor centers it wasn't like you would welcome tourists right. to come and visit it was it was a production facility so there wasn't really any access to distilleries in the same way there is now and um and so we didn't really know too much about it you know we, we knew there was distilleries everywhere we knew they made whiskey but did you know a lot of people or did your friend parents or friends yeah, so parents lot, work at these yeah, distilleries? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the, you know, the folk I went to school with, you know, their parents would be involved in distilling, but because my parents weren't, mm-hmm. I, and obviously, you know, we we were kind of I mean, although I was born and raised there, you know, we were kind of new to the island, we didn't have that distilling connection. Um and distillery jobs were always really sought after because they were steady. Uh, you know, if you're farming or fishing, you know, you know, if, if you're fishing and the weather's bad, you don't go out, you don't earn money. You know, the price Do you think is, this is why your dad 
pointed you to a distillery I think instead so, of yeah, maybe yeah. carpentry or joinery or nursing? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I looked at a lot of different things and, and my parents have been great because they never pushed me in any direction. It's always been, look, do what you want to do. But I think he was he was kind of, you know, pushing us you know, or mentioning distilleries. You know, I remember the conversation he was having with me, you know, vividly that he was, you know, basically, yeah, it's something and it's, it's going to be steady. And, you know, I think he could see there was a future. There was a steady job there, you know. Um, so yeah, there was an element of that, but I think you know there was something where distilleries were I say, taken for granted. If you like, they were, they were everywhere, and so they were you didn't necessarily know what was special about them. But uh, were you a whiskey drinker? Or were you no, your family? No, not at all. Well, so yeah, my family, my dad's, uh, my, my dad's one of four um, brothers. And they would, the brothers and their families would, my uncles would always come up, um, you know, for holidays because Islas again, they'd love coming up to Isla. And they all loved whiskey. So whenever they came over, it was always these kind of family memories of the whiskey coming out of the cupboard and, you know, like all the different whiskey from each of the distilleries on the on the table for them to taste. And and I remember the smell of, of the whiskeys and that kind of thing, but I was I was never drawn to it. You know, it was always really strong and you'd have a smell or a dip your finger and have a taste. That was really strong. No, I don't know if I like that. So I was never really a whiskey drinker uh, at all. But, uh, and again, like most people, when you're young, you, you know, you tasting whiskey or learning about uh, or drinking and you maybe overindulge slightly drinking whiskey <laughs> and then you know you kind of a bit more reticent to get stuck into a bottle again but um but oh, for, for me it was it was great even when, when I started at Brooklady I was it was a tour guide as I say and I met Jim McEwen who was the master distiller and uh, that passion was ignited and then when you you taste the whiskey you know it's obviously as a tour guide, I had to lead through people through tastings and talk about whiskey and, and explain the, what it is we were doing. And you taste it and you you understand the story of a whiskey, you know, how it's come into being and how mm-hmm. it's made. And then you appreciate it an awful lot better. And for example, there's no right or wrong way to drink whiskey. You, know, you add water, you add ice, whatever you want to do, as long as you enjoy it and get the most from it, that's the way you should drink whiskey. So again, I started adding water to whiskey. And again, it's not strong. And of course, you open the flavours out and you think, well, this is, this is really interesting. So, I think yeah, that, that education in whiskey was really important for me, and and the passion um, that was in the distillery was really important to to ignite it. And now, yeah, I'm absolutely a whiskey drinker now. You know? And the story of Brocladi itself, from oh. going from being shut down yeah. to yeah. revitalized too. It is. It's funny. I, I obviously I've told the story of Brocladi many many times, and you you know, you kind of almost forget how special it is sometimes. You know that. Um, the distillery was closed in 1994. It was owned by Jim Bean Brands, a big, big company. And they basically were surplus to requirements at the time. So they closed it down and, you know, it wasn't in the best of conditions. There had not been much investment in it. So, you know, it wasn't in, in great health and closed down surplus to requirements. And potentially that could have been it finished. Um, who knows what would have happened with single malt uh, after that, you know, maybe it would have reopened, maybe it would have closed. Brooklady was always a, a whiskey for blending predominantly, you know, mm. so again, when you're making whiskey for blends, you produce it quite cheap, you know. Um, it's, it's not, you're not going to buy amazing first fill sherry barrels from Spain, you're going right. to reuse casks that you've already got in the company, so um, it was always a bit unloved, and you look at Portellan Distillery, uh, so another distillery on Isla that was uh, kind of demolished in 1983 and a maltings was built on the site to provide malt for the other distilleries. And Diageo obviously owned Portellan. Um, the stocks of whiskey that were made when they demolished the distillery were 
actually very valuable because you could not replicate that whiskey ever. Right, yep. So you see bottles of Potella now going for thousands of pounds, you know, so you think, well, that's much easier than actually bringing the distillery back to life and employing people uh-huh. if you've, because the stocks of Brooklyn are quite healthy, so it could have been. But yeah, the companies say, well, let's demolish it and sell off the stocks and make money that way. We've got other distilleries in our portfolio. So it, it could have been, you know, the, the, that, that 94 when the distillery closed, it could have been it and that could have been us finished. Um, but it was reopened. There was a group of, you know, Jim McEwen, Mark mm-hmm. Rainier, Simon Coughlin, and Andrew Gray, Gordon Wright, these guys who basically brought the distillery back from the dead, you know, um, brought the old team back. You know, those guys who hadn't retired, who still wanted to come back, they, they came back. And the distillery, you know, young people brought in my my boss now, Alan Logan. Um, uh, he's one of, I think he's the fourth generation of his family to be making whiskey. Um, and he was about to leave the island. He was going to go because he couldn't get a job at the distillery. He left school. You know, he was a painter and decorator and there wasn't much for him here. So he was going to move to uh, to Glasgow. And then he heard that Brooklyn had been bought. Um, Jim was going to go across over to the distillery as, as head distiller. And Jim used to coach Alan at football when he was a kid. So he went across to see him and any, any jobs. And he went, absolutely. And so Alan got a start. And he was there to help renovate the distillery and, and, and fix it. And uh, now he's the production director, you know, mm-hmm. that like uh, 18 years later, you know. So so how many years later were you hired? So I was hired, I started it in 2004. So okay. opened in 2001. Um, so you were pretty early on there. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Especially... Giving tours. Yeah. I mean, how long did it take for them from 2001? Were they ready for tours? Um, or did that take a little while? Not really. It took a bit of time to get used to. So the, the shop, um, when I started, was uh, in an old warehouse, uh, which had been converted you know, from a warehouse to basically put concrete floor in. Mm-hmm. And great, there you go, there's a shop. You know, it, was, it was that uh, that simple. Uh, put some lights in and, and that was it. Before that, there was a distillery office and, you know, there was um, a woman, Chrissy, who still works in the distillery now. She was the kind of shop manager, if you like. There was a few bottles to sell. They'd maybe do some tours, but it was all quite small. But as there was Were people interest, coming then? People though? were coming, people yeah. Were coming. Not, not many, but uh-huh. people were coming. And so because people were coming, it was getting busier. Yeah, let's let's build a shop. Let's build mm-hmm. a, you know, a base for, for the tours because you had to climb up these old stairs to get to the, the old one. And, you know, that wasn't really going to work for everyone. So... Um, so yeah, they built the, this uh, shop, and um, yeah, so I, I started working there, and um, it was it was great to see. So yeah, being being there early on, and knowing you know now the distillery is uh, you know it's going from strength to strength. So uh, 2012 was bought by Remy Control, um, so the financial backing is fantastic. The ethos of Remy Control is is very much similar to to ours at the distillery anyway. So they support 100 percent what we do. They invest continually you know they, they still put lots into the distillery um because <clears throat> they believe like us that the right things are being done um but you know you go back to 2004 and you know you started with nothing really you know you um I tell stories about uh, duncan mcgilvery who is the distillery manager and you'd work in the warehouse if you were rolling barrels and your gloves were thin you get holes in them so you, you know duncan can i get some new gloves and you go yeah would you like a left or a right you know <laughs> we can't afford to give you both so it was one right. or the other um so, that, you know, that we didn't have much, but uh, this passion and energy was what we did have. And we knew that we were working towards something really good for the community because the distillery closed down, right. people lose their jobs, that affects a small community. Uh, not just the people who are working there, but roundabout, you know, surrounding the distillery as well. 
Um, so bringing it back to life was, you know, this focus on, on Isla because it was Isla people who were heavily, heavily involved in, in making whiskey and, and, you know, encouraging farmers to grow barley for us. You know, all the things we were doing were, they felt really good to be a part of. Mm-hmm. You were doing the right thing. You know, it, it wasn't just, oh, the whiskey's great and we get paid at the end of the month. You know, it's it's a really good thing that we're involved in. And you in. felt that from oh, absolutely. the minute you started? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh-huh. The first day I, I started there, Jim... Again, Jim, master distiller, I'm a, like a, a temporary tour guide. And the first day I started, he called me up to the office and I sat, went up to the office and sat there and, you know, he, he explained the story and he, you know, he told me what it was they were doing and it, what he expected of me as a tour guide and how I represent the distillery. And you feel that passion, you know, you feel, you know, again, to know this guy was uh, working at Bamor for like 40 odd years and he'd gone from an apprentice cooper at 15 when he left school sweeping up the you know mm-hmm. the uh, the warehouses and things to like the, the brand ambassador the, the guy <clears throat> traveling the world you know telling them about more and Isla whiskey and he gave all that up you know he could have happily done that for a few mm-hmm. more years and then retired been very comfortable but he gave up everything to start again because he believed that the quality of Brooklady and the you know he's a, he's an elok you know, a person from Isla is an elok he's an elok through and through and he was going to sacrifice, you know, almost everything he had mm-hmm. to do something good for the island. So, for example, we 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 built a bottling hall so we could bottle an island, provide employment uh, for everyone in Isla. So, you know, there's uh, disabled people who work there who wouldn't get a job elsewhere, but, you know, we'd provide employment for everyone. Um, it makes no financial sense to bottle your own whiskey on the island because mm-hmm. you, you bring all the empty bottles across, fill them and then send them all the way back again. So you're paying for this right. haulage and transport. Um, but it's about the community, it's about doing the right thing. And and for the whiskey, it's about the control you have over, you know, you can use Isla Spring Water and not a Glasgow tap right. water. You can you can do it exactly the way you want to, to do it. So that commitment to the people in the community was, was, yeah, absolutely. You feel part of something really positive, really good. Oh, within the company? Or did that kind of happen just by chance? I, I think it kind of happened, an element of both. I think... Um, when I was a tour guide, I loved telling the story. I loved meeting people. And, you know, for me, it, was, it wasn't just a, you do a tour. It wasn't just a 45-minute bang, bang, bang. This is the story. You know, you could take hours doing a tour. If you had the right people who were willing to listen, you know, you would literally take you know, hours doing a tour. Um, and people would always say, so, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to, you know, wait, what's your next move? You know, and I was like, well, I'm just happy being, being here. But the more people would ask the question, I started thinking, well, actually, I'd really like to do something else in the, in the distillery. Um, and so eventually, I mean, uh, long story short, I actually, I left the distillery in 2005. Was that um, what, right after tour guiding or did uh, you yeah, go right on after tour guiding? Yeah. Right, so, so there was, there tour was, guide, yeah. you went. Yeah. So a tour guide, I, I left the distillery, um, because I, I don't know, just long story, but, um, you know, basically I left the, the distillery, um, and then quickly realized it was probably the stupidest thing I'd ever done. You know, what had I given up? You know, I should have stuck in and, and worked harder. Did you um, go to a different island, or no? No, I, I, mean, so I, I stayed, oh, in, stayed Isla. in Isla. I was, Isla? I was, yeah. I mean, too much. I was, there was, uh, okay. I was in a relationship, and we were, um, you know, the, we were going to move away and and, uh, and try something else. But um, the relationship didn't really work out, and then um, I'd already handed in my notice, and uh, I remember going and saying, like, "Any chance I can stay?" And they went, "Ah, sorry, we've just employed somebody oh, no. else." So, but you know what? These, these are the decisions you right. make, and you've got to be. Wrong, and you so. were young, absolutely. You were young. Yeah, you know, who yeah. doesn't want to try many things, absolutely. thinking that. Yeah. better is out there absolutely right. um but uh, so how long did the out there last so that was about a year actually so i was i was, I was still working on the island but i was working as a, a landscape gardener um 
and it was fantastic fun. The group of people I was working with were absolutely fantastic people. So we had loads of fun, um, and we did loads of fun things. So we'd be cutting, you know, grass for people. We'd be uh, doing it for distilleries. You know, we'd be keeping the loans and all that for them. Um, we spent uh, the winter time in um, in Pridgen Woods pulling out old fencing that was needing to be removed. So you know, you go in and the the whole wood is beautiful and this lovely uh, kind of wintry days. Everything's frosty and the sun's coming up and it's freezing cold. But I mean. I loved that job. It was mm-hmm. fantastic, but it wasn't going to last forever. But you were forever. looking over for Gladdy going, oh, Yeah, well, well, that's it. it was, miss you, I miss you. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and actually, there was a, there was a moment when, um, like, and I knew the company was going to last forever. And so, okay, we better start looking at other options. And in the local newspaper, there was a, an advert for um, a job, a distillery, a production job at another distillery. And I thought, fantastic. So, not, I won't be tour guiding, I'll be making whiskey. And of course, that. Is, is really what you want to do so um, I went along to I got an interview I applied for it I got an interview and I went along the interview and it was really good and you know met had a wee tour around the distillery and met some uh, some of the guys there and um, and then later on the phone went and uh, you know when I was back at home and I was off for the job and I turned it down oh no and and it, the reason being it amazing distillery great job of course, again, I'm young and stupid, but uh, it it didn't feel like Brooklady, uh-huh. and I thought, right, okay, well, this this do I accept this job? Which I, sh- with hindsight, I probably should have done. You know, well, maybe not now, but right. uh, you know, thinking about, it, I probably should have. Oh, well, what have I done there? But I didn't take the job because it wasn't Brooklady, and I didn't feel. Again, I was being idealistic. I didn't mm-hmm. feel right, um, and so you know, thinking of that, okay, well, if I want to be at Brooklady. I'll go and ask I'll go and see okay. so I went back and I, I, I spoke to Jim and he said look we can yeah you worked with us before you worked hard we can give you a few months work and uh, you know it's coming up to whiskey festival times so there's loads of stuff to do to get prepared for that so uh, so I did I started working there I knew I had three months and um, you're like I'm going to put my head down I'll tell you what, and I, do anything they ask you are absolutely <laughs> right I, I did I did. I just worked hard I loved it and it was you know rolling barrels and, and uh, building stores and you know working with the guys it was it was absolutely fantastic and were you thinking that like counting down the three months thinking what's going to happen yeah I, I was oh, I was and I was going to make plans thinking well look if it doesn't happen you know, uh-huh. I can't find myself in these ridiculous situations again I've got to have a plan so <laughs> so I was making plans and uh Duncan McGilvery said to me one day, we're having a cup of tea, and he said, can you come up to the office? And So I came up, and he said... You're like, either this is good or bad. Yeah, well, that was, I thought it was going to be, like, thanks very much. Wait, exactly. That's, that's it. But he said, look, what, what are your plans? Do you, do you fancy staying? I thought, All right, then. <laughs> I tried to play it a little bit cool, but it was, it was like, music to my ears. So I, I was, that was me. I had a job you know, as a warehouseman, which was fantastic. And what they needed was um, was someone to train up on shift because they needed to, at the moment, sorry, at that time, we were running two shifts a day, so two eight-hour shifts, so from six in the morning until 10 at night. And they needed to go to produce a little bit more, so they needed somebody else to go on shift. So I was working in the warehouse, got the opportunity to train as a mashman, so fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm all of a sudden, from one job, I can now do two jobs. Mm-hmm. So I took that opportunity and I loved it. And at that time, I couldn't drive. I didn't have my driving license. I lived about eight miles from the distillery, so I'd be cycling uh, eight miles a day because I loved it. It was, it was, mm-hmm. it didn't matter. You know, I'd, right. I'd have walked there, I'd swam there, or whatever. I would have got there because it was great to be able to actually make whiskey. Um, so that was that was a tremendous thing for me. And I, I again, I'm, I'm so grateful to, I mean, one for Ella at the, the beginning for the opportunity, uh, but Duncan and, and Jim, 
um, for again for believing me, giving me a chance, you know, and and a second chance, and uh, you know now. I think it's it's, uh, it's something I look back on because Jim and Duncan have retired and, and some of the guys, again, who taught me how to make whiskey have retired and moved on from the distillery as well. And, um, you know, you, you just look back and think the opportunity we had was was created because the passion and the, the, the hard work these guys put in, the sacrifice they mm-hmm. put in to make that distillery a success. So when we had no money in, and, the, and the, you know, the, the situation was precarious, you know, week to week, month to month of is the distillery going to survive? the drive and the will and the passion of these people is instilled in me and the opportunities they gave me and the kindness they showed me to do this, you know, to, to, to learn how to make whiskey. Well, if they hadn't seen the passion in you... Well, I think that's it, you know? I, I think You that's wouldn't it. have been there, yeah. really, yeah, I it, think. It goes around, uh, I think, it's, it's yeah, both ways, doesn't mm-hmm. it, you know? But... Now, working in a distillery and actually making the spirit itself and, you know, how did you find out that you even had... I don't know, the mouth, the tongue, whatever. I don't know the right words for it. That ability to taste it and know what is good and right for Brooklady. Well, I think it's it's down to experience, to be honest. Um, One of the great things, again, working alongside Jim. So Jim was master distiller. He was Mm. the blender, putting all the whiskeys together. He would, you know, whether we make Brooklady, put Charlotte, Octomo, Spirit, you know, whether it's Isla Grown and and all the detail we put in is, is, you know, really down to to him and, and Duncan, the guys, to implement these ideas, you know, so you try and source barley from different places to understand the flavour, uh, keep all that separate, you know, it's down to, to Jim and, you know, the casks it's matured in and how long it matures, where it matures, what strength you fill the casks, all the detail mm-hmm. was down to, to Jim. And um, working alongside them, because you're working closely, it's a small company, you're working alongside these guys um, when it comes to blending or creating a whiskey. Jim's there, tell us what cast to use. We go down, we do it, and he's tasting, and you stood beside him, so you're tasting, and you start picking up the language, mm-hmm. how to describe flavors. You start picking up when you taste things, you start, you know, if, if he's talking about, you know, there's this nice citrus lemon notes in here. When he says that and he knows it, you can start to pick that up. So you start to build up this kind of um, database, if you like, of, of what those ages of whiskey are, what the cast types are, what the flavors are. So you start to really intuitively know what whiskey produced by Brooklady is and what mm-hmm. should be and what could be and so really just by working alongside Jim and picking up that experience was uh, was I don't think I've got an exceptional palate you know mm-hmm. I don't think it, but I've got the experience of working with Brooklady and tasting and nosing and that you can improve you know it's like anything you, you can train yourself you can improve so um so I spent my time you know doing that nosing and tasting and picking up the language and uh and, and kind of deepening my my knowledge of Brooklady so that when Jim retired, he felt he could retire because there was somebody there who was able to uh, to step in and, um, you know, take over from him. So, yeah, it's an interesting one because I, say, I don't think I've got an exceptional nose for, for, for whiskey. Um, I think you're being shy, but that's OK. Well, yeah, no, I think I think obviously he did, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, and that was something I, I work on. Uh-huh. But I, I wouldn't say I was born with a gift or anything like that. People always say, obviously, you're born to it. And I think, again, if you've got passion, you can you can improve, you can you can train. Um, yeah, sure, there's got to be something there at the beginning. But I think for me, I've been working there for yeah 15 years. So. That 15 years experience has got mm. me to where I am, I am today, uh, and the passion for it. You know, even if you know, I, I often believe that when you you're tasting whiskey and you're leading a tasting, the worst thing you can do is start telling people you should taste this, you should smell that, because really everyone's going to come at it with their own language, their own experiences. So if I go to China and I'm talking about um, 
you know, shortbread. You know, I'm getting nice shortbread honey notes here, and people are trying to go, what is shortbread? You know? Right. So it's not it's not fair for me to uh-huh, kind of give of them course. this language of what, what I think. So um, it's about that shared experience. And for me, it's more about the story of a whiskey and, you know, how it feels and the texture, the palate, you know. Um, that That's equally as important as the flavours I think you should taste. So... Um, yeah, I don't believe in. I'll, I'll write tasting notes for whiskies that we make. I'll I'll say what I think, but it's great to have a conversation with people when they think you know they pick up their own flavors and their own style uh, in a whiskey. So, well, let's talk about the whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unpeated. The the original. Yeah. The flavor, How yeah. did they? Well, I guess it had shut down. Mm-hmm. All right. Obviously, the recipes and all of that. Um, how long did it take before? Jim or all of you thought, okay, or they, when they were working there early, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we have what we think or what we know is Brooklady. Well, that's that's interesting because uh, what, like, see, when, when the distillery was reopened, we had the stocks that made up until 1994, some mm-hmm. of the stocks there. So they were still there. So yeah, we, still, we, still we had, had this old stock again. So when you, when you start making whiskey, of course, mm-hmm. in 2001, when we're making whiskey, we weren't going to release that. For, well, it has to be a minimum of three years right. to even call it whiskey. So that's three years. What are you going to do? You know, five years really is, is the minimum you you maybe want to do. Um, so basically, Jim had to go through the stocks in the warehouses and start to pull together from the age profile and the flavor profiles whiskey. So uh, in the early days, that's what he did. He was creating whiskies uh, from what was there. Um, but I think there was the courage there to start making whiskey, the spirit, um, by focusing on the varieties of barley, by... Um, you know, the guys who'd made whiskey there, the, the, the men who'd been making whiskey before it closed, they came back. So they knew how to mash. They knew how to run the stills. Um, so you're creating spirit that way. And then Jim would be nosing, tasting that spirit, adjusting cut points, you know, making small changes to to really get what he felt was the best mm-hmm. quality of flavor. Not to just rehash what exactly, was before. Exactly, because but if, to... you, if we just repeated what was happened before, you know, for one thing, we didn't sell any whiskey for blend, to blenders anymore. So it was all going right. to be for single malt for ourselves. So... When you're making for blenders, it's volume you're looking for, it's speed you're looking for. When you're um, making it for yourself, a single malt, there's nowhere to hide. You know, It's not going to be mixed in with anything else, so it has to be perfect. So that was what was really mm-hmm. driving things. Uh, and I must say the spirit that we inherited, and we still have some open bottle now, it's always been distilled very, very well. Um, so there wasn't really much work we needed to do. You know, The quality of cask maybe was, was, the cask was maybe tired, but if you take that spirit and put it into a good cask, you know, you're cooking with gas, that, that, that whiskey is really starting to develop because it's in contact with good wood and it's maturing, it's developing well. So there wasn't a huge changes, I think. Um, I think the philosophical, philosophical side of it where they were, um, you know, focusing on, on, on single malt only, on Scottish barley, on Isla barley, and being creative and making Brooklady, but also let's make heavily peated whiskey as well. So we made Port Charlotte. And then we made Optimore because we wanted to push the boundaries and see. Was that kind of all at the same time? Yeah, it was. It was all, yeah, so, so I think you wanted to get it in, in the barrels as soon as possible. Straight away, there was this, uh-huh. this you know, Brocladi was the whiskey that, uh, for example, Mark Rainier fell in love with because of its elegance and its style. You know, it's a beautiful whiskey. Um, and Jim loved, you know, Isla is, is renowned for its peated whiskey. So mm-hmm, why can we not course. do both? So we made mm-hmm. Brocladi and Port Charlotte. And the Port Charlotte story, that spirit was so good and the peat was was uh, was sitting beautifully around the spirit that, well, let's, how peaty can you make a whiskey? So the next year it was, it was we created Optimore purely to see how peaty we could make a whiskey. You know, so that spirit of adventure was, mm-hmm. was, 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 was there in everything we did. There wasn't ever a, right, we need to, there's a, there's a marketplace somewhere we need to fill, you know, with a product. It was just purely experimental for the joy of distilling and the experimentation of it, um, which we still, again, still have and we still retain that, that, that 
you know, there's things that we, we do, we make rye whiskey, you know, because again, we want to explore that flavor. We'll quadruple the still whiskey because we want to understand how that flavor comes about as well. So um, that passion for distilling, I think, still guides us uh, in what we do. Um, the quality of the spirit we have inherited you know, is, is fantastic. And by improving the wood quality, we're making amazing whiskeys. And, um, you know, we've just released a, a whiskey that is the last whiskey from the, the 1988 vintage. And it is beautiful, beautiful whiskey. And again, you look at those whiskies and you think, you know, I hope in years to come, the whiskey that we're making today is as good as that. You know, um, we like to think that uh, it's going to be better because we're putting more focus on ingredients and more love into the distillery and there's no pressure to make it fast. It's about preserving this amazing quality of spirit. Um, but it's just a fascinating thing to see what's going to happen in the future. Are you playing around with some new things? Absolutely. Always, always, oh. always playing around with new things. I think there's always innovation at Brooklady. We're always releasing new whiskies. Um, our focus, you know, particularly with Brooklady just now, is on, on the variety of barley and it's on where that's grown and understanding the provenance and the terroir of whiskey. Because to us, that makes perfect sense that the flavors you distill come from the grain and the soil. But the whiskey industry never ever talk about that kind of thing. So for us, our conversation is around the barley and the exploration that we have and we share with people who drink our whiskey. And it's fascinating when you get talking mm-hmm. about it, you know. Um, and it's such a, an amazing thing to be able to talk about. And it might be difficult to do. It's probably the reason most people don't do it. Um, but for us, it's a unique thing and it's a special thing. And we, we love having that conversation about uh, about the fundamental ingredients of whiskey and how it comes into being. Mm-hmm. Well, you've made me super thirsty. Can we go have a dram of something? I think we should. Let's go and crack a bottle of open a bottle of Octomore, shall we? Go and open a bottle. And what a dram we had. More than one, if I'm honest. Thanks so much to Adam for sharing his single malt and his story. Now, of course, it's time for that cocktail of the week. We've been on about rum sours for the last few weeks, and so now it's time for a whiskey sour. Supposedly, the oldest historical reference of it was published in the Wisconsin newspaper Waukesha Plain Dealer in 1870. But here's how the Brook Laddie Brunch serve it up in 2019 as the Laddie Sour and our Cocktail of the Week. So put all the following ingredients together into a shaker. 50 mLs of classic Laddie, 20 mLs of lemon juice, 15 mLs of simple syrup, one egg white and a few dashes of Angostura bitters. Then dry shake them, then add ice and wet shake them. Then strain everything into a rocks filled glass and garnish with a lemon twist. You'll find this recipe, more whiskey recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I've been ordering whiskey sours everywhere lately. I'm not sure why I didn't before, because I love it. It's one of those perfect serves, if done well. And unlike the rum sour, which is a bit more party, this seems a bit more serious, which is not a bad thing. Just, I guess, it's for the weeknight more than the weekend. I'm still figuring it out. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife, and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we're still here every Tuesday. 
Also, you know how much I love to talk about cocktails. So why don't you join me on flick.group slash lush life app. It's free to join and works on Android and iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. The music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. As we're on whiskey, let's hop across the sea to Dublin to a brand new whiskey distillery in a very ancient part of the city called Hell next time. Until then, bottoms up.